Fired Up show starts right now. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Fired Up right here on WJMS Media. This is Steve. I'm your host each week, and we're going to dive into uh, the political arena again in here in the United States. Uh, as you know, we are fully into uh, presidential campaign mode as we march headlong toward November 2024, uh, as well as some races that uh, are going to be happening over the coming weeks. Uh, We will uh, dissect uh, the results of which uh, over the course of coming episodes. Uh, So let's get right into it um, and want to start off. uh, Obviously, uh, we are still uh, moving through Black History Month here in the United States. And we're going to talk a little bit uh, in the second segment about uh, actually forward history. So if you think about, remember back to your uh, elementary math days uh, where you had the number line where you know it went off to the right and to the left and there are arrows pointing in both directions. Well, if the left-facing uh, arrow represents history in the past, we're going to take a little look at uh, history coming going forward. We're going to look at some future history makers that I want to introduce you to. Uh, hopefully, uh, you will uh, hear more and bigger things from them over the course of the years coming. So we'll get to that in the second half. But I want to start off with uh, kind of uh, an analysis, uh, perhaps a little bit of a rant. Uh, and it, it goes a lot like this. Uh, about a week ago, the, uh, the Senate passed a uh, bill uh, dealing with uh, aid for Ukraine and uh, aid for Israel and Palestine, uh, as well as our uh, uh, Indo-Chinese partners uh, and and so forth. And it included an aggressive set of uh, border uh, security issues uh, now, you might say that, okay, so, you know, yeah, border security, uh, you know, Republicans have been talking about that forever. And you'd be right, uh, since at least the Obama administration, so over 15 years ago, the Republicans have been on an absolute tirade about uh, securing the southern border of the United States. And, you know, they have made, you know, proposals and it's been shot down in democratically controlled uh, uh, House and Senate. Uh, It's gone back and forth. They haven't been able to agree on a package of border security measures that would be acceptable to both Democrats and Republicans, thereby garnering the number of votes needed to send legislation to the desk of the president, uh, whichever president uh, it has been, you know, over the last 16 years, uh, for you know, signature into law, uh, it has become kind of a uh, a stumbling point uh, and a a a a point of contention. Call it what you will, uh, but apparently, it has seemed over the years that neither side uh, could either propose a package that was acceptable to all or 
propose a package that uh, made sense to either particular party. Uh, and, you know, over the last week, uh, we saw emerge from the Senate a uh, border deal and foreign aid package. Uh, and, you know, a- as covered by the media, and I'm, I'm going to pull from an article from CNN uh, as it, it uh, covers uh, really the points I want to raise and, and kind of the content of the border security portion uh, of the supplemental appropriation package. Uh, and uh, in, in the article, it, it goes like this. Uh, the, and this article came out uh, more than a week ago. It was uh, on the 5th of February, which was uh, just after the, uh, the bill had been proposed in the Senate. Uh, and we're, we're going we're gonna to discuss that. We're going to discuss both the Democratic and Republican responses to it. Because uh, I think it, it is uh, both interesting and indicative of what the problem with our divided government is. And so the, 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 it goes like this. Uh, the Senate uh, ha- had a border deal and foreign aid pack- package released on February 4th, uh, which would implement uh, strict limits along the U.S. southern border. Now, that's not you know, news in and of itself. What is news is that this package uh, was proposed, supported, and uh, passed uh, with bipartisan support, but led by the Democrats. Uh, The other piece that was most uh, shocking about this, for lack of a better term, was that it contained some of the hardline security measures that Republicans have been uh, railing about, uh, again, as I said, since the Obama administration. Uh, and, you know, what, what it meant is that if this bill passed, uh, it would dramatically change the immigration law uh, for the first time in literally decades. Uh, it pa- the package paves a way for a key vote in the, the Senate chamber, which passed, and uh, then uh, traveling uh, down the hallway to the House uh, chamber for consideration. And, and we'll, we'll come back and circle back on that point in a second. Uh, some of the key points that were included in the bill. And, it, you know, if you have followed Democrat and Republican politics, you know, uh, again, over the, the past few years at least and over the, the longer period uh, and more specifically, uh, some of these, these uh, changes that are in the bill are going to sound extremely familiar. So uh, one of them, and again, these are, are the key highlights, uh, would, would grant new emergency authority to restrict border crossings if the daily average migrant encounters reach 4,000 over a one-week span. Uh, if that metric is reached, Homeland Security Secretary could decide uh, to largely bar migrants from seeking asylum if they cross the border illegally. Uh, if migrant crossings increase above 5,000 on average per day uh, in a given week, uh, the, author, the DHS would be authorized to use this authority. If encounters reach 8,500 in one day, 
for instance, the department is required to trigger the authority. Uh, but the federal government uh, has a limit uh, uh, imposed as uh, how long it can use uh, this authority. For example, in the first year, the government could use it for 270 days. Uh, then uh, a, a number of 225 days in the second year and 180 days in the third year. Uh, and the, this authority uh, would sunset, that is, it would end after the three-year period. Uh, another key is that it codifies a policy that requires the government to process at least 1,400 asylum applications at ports of entry when the emergency thor uh, authority is triggered. So, you know, if we hit that uh, 8,500 in a day or 4,000 uh, over a week, the government is required then to be processing at least 1,400 asylum applications per day. Uh, it raises the legal standard of proof to pass the initial screening for asylum. This would make it you know, a, a more difficult for asylum seekers to pass. Uh, it expedites the asylum processing timeline from what's there now in that it can be up to several years down to six months. And it introduces a new process in which U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services would decide an asylum claim without it going through the immigration court system. Uh, now, this doesn't apply to unaccompanied migrant children, but for adults, this would be in place. Uh, and another key point, it preserves the president's authority to designate uh, humanitarian parole on a case-by-case -case basis. For instance, if in, if in force now, President Biden could use the authority for Ukrainians, Afghans, Cubans, Venezuelans, and Haitians, among other populations. Uh, it includes limited changes that narrow the use of parole at land borders, and it authorizes 250,000 additional immigrant visas spread out over five years uh, for families and applies to employment-based immigrants. Uh, and another component is it provides a pathway to citizenship for Afghans paroled into the United States after the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and extends the special immigrant visa program for Afghans who worked for the U.S. government. So that, that's a pretty big mouthful. Let, let's digest that just a little bit. So the Republicans have always been screaming about, you know, there are too many migrants coming across the border. You know, it's out of control. Uh, there, there's no, no rhyme or reason to it. Uh, and that, uh, you know, immigration authorities are hamstrung and how they can deal with it. So the first two components I mentioned effectively set these limits, 4,000 over a one-week span. Uh, once that's reached, uh, the access or uh, migrant-seeking asylum, that could be shut off. Uh, migrant crossings increase above 5,000 on any given day uh, within a given week. Uh, the DHS would, uh, that would automatically trigger DHS to use the authority. If they reach 8,500 in a day, 
the department is required to trigger the uh, authority, but the federal government is limited in how long how long it can use uh, that authority. So you know, in, in that element, uh, it does something the Republicans have wanted uh, for a long time. It sets some hard control numbers on how many migrants can enter this country on a daily and weekly basis uh, before uh, certain consequences kick into gear. Uh, so that that's one part of you know what the Democrats and keep in mind these are Democratic, I'm sorry, Democrat introduced provisions, not Republican, Democrat. Uh, the policy that requires the government to process at least 1,400 applications at ports of entry when this emergency, emergency authority is triggered. Uh, you know, and you know, again, as I said, it sets uh, a higher standard for um, legal proof to pass the initial screening for asylum. Uh, and it, it does something that has been a big uh, complaining point over the years. It reduces the amount of time uh, between uh, the start of the processing uh, timeline and the end from where it is now, where it take anywhere from you know two years or longer down to six months. And it introduces a new process uh, for citizenship and immigration services, uh, which would decide an asylum claim without it going through the immigration court system. So, you know, it it, uh, it addresses many of the points that Republicans have been raising over the years. So, given that, one would think that the Republicans, you know, would would be singing the Hallelujah chorus, saying, you know, the Democrats have finally come around to our way of thinking, yay, hooray. Uh, but within 24 hours of the announcement of the passage of this bill in the Senate, the House and you know Speaker Mike Johnson have. Uh, deemed it dead on arrival. They are not going to uh, to even bring the bill, the full bill, to the floor. And you know, when when pressed as for the reason why, wait for it. It's because uh, the front runner for the Republican uh, nomination for president wants to preserve the crisis at the border as a campaign issue uh, in the, the campaigns for uh, the, the Republican nomination and the general election uh, here in 2024. Let me rephrase that. Uh, support for this bill in the House has been, uh, been removed because the former president wants to use this issue to run on in the upcoming election. So think about that for a second. Republicans have been screaming for a solution to the problem at the border for a decade and a half, if not longer. The Democrats finally put some very hard limits and, and controls in place dealing specifically with the the issues of immigration and the border, not to mention the fact that the bill also includes funding for additional uh, border patrol agents, 
equipment supplies. Uh, it includes funding to uh, further build out the wall that was started in the Trump administration and still remains largely unfinished. Uh, and, and it does a bunch of other things. Included among that is that it includes an aid package for Ukraine, uh, which they desperately need, uh, an aid package uh, for the crisis in the Middle East that would go to both the Israelis and the Palestinians, uh, the latter of which would be for humanitarian aid, uh, and the Israeli package would be for both uh, humanitarian, but more importantly, for military aid. Uh, and it includes uh, funding to uh, assist with the uh, Taiwan situation in their resistance against being overrun by China, uh, as well as some other uh, funding priorities that have been long-standing issues uh, in, in the, the Democrat and modern Republic, uh, Republican ranks. So uh, basically, this package, which was widely seen as very beneficial to both sides of the aisle, is being yanked off the table in the House because Donald Trump wants to use it as a campaign weapon. Um, this, to me, you know, points out uh, the, the dysfunction that we have in our government, and it raises the question for um, uh, conservative and you know, right-wing Republicans, uh, what exactly is it that you want? Uh, why would you turn this uh, beneficial package, and when I say beneficial, I mean beneficial to issues that are near and dear to your heart and have been for over 15 years, uh, you would turn this down. Your best chance to get this package uh, probably, uh, you know, in, in, within the next two or three presidential cycles, uh, simply because uh, the former president uh, wants to use this uh, to run against Joe Biden. Uh, make, it makes no sense to me, however, when counting in you know, uh, the, the, the former president and the current status of the conservative side of the Republican Party, um, I, I understand uh, I don't like it. I think it is it is foolish. I think it is suicidal uh, for Republicans. Uh, if, if you think this is going to be an issue that is going to help you win elections uh, and especially help you win the general election, uh, you are mistaken. This is something that is going to come back around and bite the Republicans squarely in the ass and it is going to cost them uh, not only uh, seats in the House, but it's going to cost them seats in the Senate, and it is going to preclude them from regaining the White House. Uh, it, it just makes no sense other than the, the fulfillment of the ego of uh, former President Trump. So, you know, I think what the electorate needs to do and this would be Democrats or Republicans, because if you're a Democrat who happens to live in a red state where your senators are Republicans, it's on you to reach out to them and communicate, you know, your displeasure or disapproval of you know, this tactic 
with them as well as it does for Republicans uh, if you think uh, it is high time that a, a common sense, practical, uh, uh, straight line answer to the situation at the southern border uh, be brought forward. Uh, and, and as I said, if the Republicans in the House uh, shoot this down and right now, as of this recording, uh, Mike Johnson is saying that this is dead on arrival. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about an option that could be on the table to address this. But, you know, Mike Johnson uh, is definitely feeling the pull of the strings that are held by uh, the former president over the Republican Party. Now, I mentioned uh, just now uh, a mechanism where this bill could be brought to the floor, uh, regardless of whether or not the Speaker of the House uh, wants, to, uh, wants to, to bring it. And what this is called, it is called a discharge petition. Uh, and it, it is a, a complicated, uh, hard-to-implement solution However, uh, when it is implemented, uh, it definitely will bring this bill to the, fl to the floor. So uh, what is a discharge petition? A, dis yeah, a discharge petition allows an aggrieved coalition made up of the minority party and members of the majority who are at odds with their leadership to force a vote on legislation. Uh, now, that, that sounds like a relatively straightforward uh, process and, and proposal. However, the, the mechanism to bring it to the floor, the bill, uh, and this is according to information, uh, the bill needs to have been referred to a standing committee for at least 30 legislative days. Uh, that, that legislative part is important because the legislative agenda, the number of days that uh, the House is in session, is, uh, is a, a random factor. Realize that um, uh, senators and congresspeople in Washington, they, they don't work a regular Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, in the same place like you and I do. Um, they have legislative days, and then they have you know administrative days or uh, local office days uh, where they're out of Washington, and you know and what that means is that if you look at the uh, legislative calendar for the House, out of the number of possible work days in a year, and doing doing quick math in my head. I want to say it is something like 280, 270 something or 280 uh, days uh, in a year, work days, Monday through Friday, you know, week over week. Uh, they work on, on average uh, about 165. So, you know, it, it is not unusual for the House to be in session for two days and then to be out of session uh, for the remaining three days plus the weekend, whereby the Congress people, you know, fly back to their districts 
and you know do their their local legislative work with their constituents so i mean if you want to argue yes they are quote working close quote um, but they are not sitting in the house chamber in washington dc working and passing legislation they are doing other aspects of their congressional job uh, for their constituents which is not necessarily a bad thing um, however, given the amount of things that, you know, are, are issues in this country right now, uh, we really would be better if they spent more days uh, in the House chamber uh, working to resolve uh, legislative issues than, you know, uh, at home meeting with constituents, going on, you know, local radio and local TV or, or you know, CNN or Newsmax or Fox or MSNBC or whatever. Um, so getting back to the, the discharge petition. So, you know, it would be uh, necessary uh, for the petition to get signatures from a majority of the chamber before it can be used to advance a bill to a vote. What that means is, uh, given where the the chamber sits, and assuming you know that the vacant seat that was occupied by you know former Congressman Santos is filled, which it it will be on on you know the vote this week, uh, then 217 uh, representatives would need uh, to sign on to advance the bill. Now. You know, the problem is and the the rub comes is that different components of the House, both Democrat and Republican in this instance, um, have different agenda items they are uh, they want to push forward. For example, not all the Republicans are in favor of you know, uh, continuing support for Ukraine. It's actually a big bone of contention right now. Uh, also, not all Republicans are, you know, in favor of aid going to Palestine uh, or, you know, supporting efforts in Taiwan. And similarly, uh, there are some Democrats who don't want to see uh, aid provided for Palestine uh, and have some ambiguity on the Ukraine funding package, uh, which is also uh, under under heavy scrutiny by the Republican side of the aisle. So, you know, in order to get this this discharge petition signed, uh, all of these separate factions would need to push all that aside and join in and sign on on this petition. So. What does that mean for us, for the electorate? If we want to get resolution to the issues at the southern border, uh, as proposed by the Democrats, and we want uh, to see uh, desperately needed funding go to Ukraine uh, and, you know, funding uh, to continue to Israel and humanitarian aid for Palestine and, and, and all of these components, we need to communicate with our elected representatives in the House uh, ASAP uh, very, very heavily. We need to get 
a huge number of people calling their office, sending emails, uh, hitting them up on their their Twitter slash X, uh, you know, social media accounts, uh, making sure that we are letting them know that, you know, we want to see these items uh, move forward uh, and that we want to see a a a, a full throated uh, support of, you know, the border uh, security issues uh, in the southern border. Uh, in other words, we want to see them actually do uh, pass this so that I can go to President Biden who can sign it so that we can get something done at the border and address the the migrant and illegal uh, immigration problems we have. Um, you know, it, it is it is clear that the the status quo work uh, that has been done so far is not sufficient. So this is something that we need to force their hand to do. So you know. Homework assignment given. Uh, get on, get on the phone with your uh, representative, and you know, let's uh, make that happen. Now you can get in contact with your uh, senator uh, in Washington D.C. or both senators and your um, members in the House uh, by phone if you call the U.S. Capitol switchboard. And that number is area code 202-224-3121. I'll give that to you again. It's 202-224-3121. If you call that number, you can you know, let them know where you live and have them connect you with your uh, senator or with uh, members of your uh, congressional delegation so that you can speak directly to their offices and uh, perhaps even speak with them directly or speak with their staff and get your opinion, your voice heard uh, by your elected officials. So that number again is 202-224-3121. So write that down, save it in your phone uh, so that you have ready access to it so you can call them whenever you need to call them uh, to get your point across. All right. So let's um, let's take our break here. And when we come back on the other side, uh, we're going to pick up our discussion on Black History Month. And we're going to look uh, at some uh, black leaders who are shaping uh, history today and will be uh, key players as we look back in coming years as to the movers and shakers of black history going forward. You're listening to the Fired Up Podcast. This is Steve. We'll be right back here on WJMS Media. Don't go away. Uh, we're very excited about the segment coming up after the break. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Tom and Levi. Tom is the smartest man I know. He's been a professor at two major universities, been a teacher for over 40 years. One day, he told me that he was having um, problems in his classes. I think one of the students had asked the question and he didn't remember the answer. And I also noticed that he was letting his class out earlier than they were supposed to let out. And he was telling them that he was doing it as a favor to them, but I think in reality, he just wanted to get out of there. 
Um, I was really starting to worry because I saw something was wrong. Levi and I talked about how it would change our lives, but he was there beside me, and my love for him was just immense. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. And welcome back. Welcome back to Fired Up. This is Steve, and we're right here on WJMS Media. Uh, let's get into the second half. Uh, as I mentioned uh, earlier, we are in the middle, uh, almost exactly, of Black History Month. And I wanted to take kind of a different direction and kind of talk about future history. Uh, and by that, I mean uh, individuals who... Uh, are are going to be in the uh, annals of Black history as we go forward in the coming you know years and and decades. So CNBC put together a really uh, good list. Uh, now this list came out in 2019, so there are a few people who are not on it who have come to the forefront since then. Uh, I will pull those names and we will talk about them. Uh, in a part two of this uh, in the next uh, episode of Fired Up. But for right now, uh, let's go through uh, this list that, that was compiled, again, by CNBC. So the, this list you know, follows the lead of trailblazers throughout American history. Uh, the uh, black history makers of today are shaping not only today's uh, news and events, but tomorrow's history as well. Uh, and you know whether it's helping to develop a COVID-19 vaccine, uh, to breaking barriers in the White House uh, and in the C-suite, uh, these 23 individuals uh, are shattering glass ceilings uh, across their, their wide-ranging roles. So we'll start off at the top, and the first name on the list uh, is uh, Kamala Harris, who is the first black, first South Asian American, and first woman vice president of the United States. Uh, and on January 20th of uh, uh, 2021, Kamala Harris assumed the role of vice president. Uh, she's also the first uh, vice president to have graduated from a historically black college or a university. Uh, Howard University. Uh, shout out to Howard, uh, my father's alma mater, and credits her sense of being and meaning to her time as a student there. Harris is also a member of the oldest historically black sorority, Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. Uh, so, you know, obviously uh, Kamala Harris has, has, you know, stepped into the forefront of African-American history uh, going forward. And hers is a name that we will be speaking of uh, for many, many, many years to come. Uh, the next name on the list is, uh, and, and by the way, some of these names you won't know. And, you know so hopefully, uh, as I mention them, yeah, take a moment, you know, jot them down and, and search them out. I'm just giving a quick overview but there's a lot more detail uh, both in the article and uh, you know, on, online to find out about these people. So the next member is Rosalind Brewer, 
who is Walgreens uh, CEO and the only black woman to currently lead a Fortune 500 firm. Uh, so she was formerly Starbucks chief operating officer, and now she is, uh, star is the CEO of drugstore chain Walgreens Boots Alliance. Uh, you know, she will be uh, the currently uh, black woman leading a Fortune 500 firm and just the third black woman in history to serve as a Fortune 500 CEO. So, you know, it, that is a, uh, a milestone. Uh, she follows Ursula Burns, who served as CEO of Xerox between 2009 and 2016, who was the first, and Mary Winston, who served as interim CEO of Bed Bath & Beyond in 2019, who was the second. Uh, next name on the list is Dr. Kizmikia S. Corbett, who is the lead scientist on the Moderna, who was the lead scientist on the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine team. Again, keep in mind this list was published in 2019, so uh, it, it has, you know, uh, a little bit of legs to it. According to a quote from Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, he said, and again, I quote, the first thing you might want to say to my African-American brothers and sisters is the vaccine you are going to be taking was developed by an African-American woman, he said, quote, and that is just a fact, close quote. Amen. So, you know, the the idea here is, you know, as with history and uh, history makers in the past, uh, we find that when we look at the highlights and we look at the trailblazers uh, that people of African descent in this country are very well represented. Uh, the next one, uh, the first black astronaut to live and work at the International Space Station for an extended stay was Victor J. Glover Jr. Uh, when he arrived at the ISS, uh, you know, he, he flew up on a SpaceX Crew Dragon capsule uh, in November of 2019. He settled in for a six-month stay to become the first black astronaut to live and work on ISS for an extended period of time. Uh, so, and, and as a side note, the article cites, of the more than 300 NASA astronauts who have been sent to space, only 14 have been black Americans. So... You know, if I had the opportunity, you know, I, I'd be up there, too. I, I'm a space geek from way back. Uh, next is Amanda Gorman, the youngest inaugural poet in U.S. history. So of all the uh, politicians and entertainers uh, who were on display at President Biden's inauguration, uh, by far the breakout star of the event was Amanda Gorman. Uh, who at 22 years old uh, became the youngest inaugural poet in U.S. history. Uh, she recited her poem uh, called The Hill We Climb that called for Americans to rebuild, reconcile, and recover from deeply rooted divides and racial inequities, particularly during a time of unprecedented illness, death, political strife, and calls for racial justice across the country. Uh, she finished her poem shortly after the January 6th riots at the Capitol and counts among uh, things that inspire her 
the uh, quintessential poem by Maya Angelou, uh, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. So, you know, very, very powerful speech. Uh, and, you know, again, someone who we will see again as we review history going forward. Uh, another leader, uh, Ralph Warnock, who is now uh, Georgia's first black senator, uh, recently in, in the 2022 uh, uh, midterms, was elected to a full term in Georgia. Uh, the, he is Reverend Raphael Warnock. Uh, he beat uh, incumbent Senator Kelly Loeffler in 2021 and has since gone on to win re-election. Uh, he, you know, has immediately stepped into the role uh, of a leader, not only for the state of Georgia, but for the nation. Uh, he's also uh, the uh, pastor of the Ebenezer Baptist Church, uh, which notably was where uh, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., uh, was once the pastor uh, since, you know, he, the youngest senior pastor there since the church was founded in 1886. Uh, so another is Rashida Jones, who is uh, a MSNBC president and the first black executive to run a major television news network. Uh, she, you know, came to uh, the role as a senior vice president of news at MSNBC and NBC News, uh, where she oversaw breaking news coverage. Uh, she uh, set the, the guidance for coverage of the coronavirus pandemic and 2020 election. Next, we have uh, Sandra Lindsay, who is the first American to get the COVID-19 vaccine uh, outside of clinical trials. Uh, she cites that she volunteered herself. Uh, she's a critical care nurse, uh, becoming the first person in America to get the COVID-19 vaccine outside of a trial on December 14th in Queens, New York. Nicholas Johnson, uh, who at the age of 23 uh, in 2020 uh, became Princeton's first black valedictorian. Uh, the the, uh, as I said, in May of 2020, he was announced as Princeton University's first black valedictorian in the school's 275-year history. Uh, Cynthia, uh, also known as Cynt uh, Marshall, first black woman CEO in the NBA, uh, she you know, claims that she wants to make sure she's not going to be the last uh, she is with uh, the Dallas Mavericks uh, and, uh, you know, made it in 2018 as the first black CEO in the NBA. Next, we have Representative Cori Bush, first black woman sworn into Congress to represent Missouri, serving as the state's first, uh, save, serving the state's first district that includes the St. Louis area. Alicia Bowler Davis, the first black woman named to Amazon's senior team, uh, basically the inner circle that advises Jeff Bezos. Uh, she is an engineer uh, and she came to uh, Amazon from General Motors Institute 
uh, and you know, launching her engineering career, designing cars for the company. Uh, she spent 25 years with GM, becoming the first black woman to run a manufacturing plant at the company, the senior vice president of customer experience, and later executive vice president of global manufacturing. Noah Harris, the first black man to, to be student body president at Harvard. Uh, and this, again, from November 2020, uh, uh, Mr. Harris, a junior from uh, Hattiesburg, Mississippi, became the first black man elected to serve as Harvard's student body president in the school's 384-year history. Uh, it's a title Harris says he is grateful to have earned. You know, he talks uh, as far as uh, his inspirations. Uh, he points to uh, Fentress Driscoll, who was the first black woman to serve as Harvard's student body president. Uh, and currently serves in the Florida House of Representatives, as well as W.E.B. Du Bois uh, as the first black individual to earn a Ph.D. from Harvard. Next on the list is Melody Hobson, first black woman to serve as chair of Starbucks board. Uh, in December of 2020, Hobson, president and co-CEO of money management firm Ariel Investments, was named chair of Starbucks Board of Directors. Uh, when she stepped in to the role in March, she became the first black woman to hold that position. Next on the list, Sydney Barber, a U.S. Naval Academy's first black female brigade commander. In the U.S. Navy's, uh, I'm sorry, U.S. Naval Academy's 175-year history, there has never been a black woman to serve as a brigade commander. All of that changed in January of 2020 when midshipman Sidney Bar Barber stepped into the role. Uh, she said that she would compare her job to a student body president at a civilian institution, explaining that she oversees roughly or she oversaw roughly 4,000 midshipmen at the Naval Academy. Jesse Collins, uh, who was the first black executive producer of the Super Bowl halftime show uh, in 2021, uh, he produced the halftime show uh, for that year, uh, the most watched TV concert headlined by The Weeknd, uh, and making him the first black executive producer of the Super Bowl halftime show. Nia DaCosta the first black woman to direct a Marvel film. Uh, when Nia, I'm sorry, when Disney's Marvel Studios tapped Nia DaCosta to direct the upcoming Captain Marvel sequel, uh, which came out in theaters in, uh, I believe it was 2020, late 2022 or 2023, she became the first black woman director to tackle the Marvel Universe. Aisha Evans, the first black woman to run a self-driving car company. When Aisha Evans agreed to become the new CEO of autonomous vehicle startup Zoox in 2019, she made history as the first black woman to run a self-driving car company. In 2020, she shepherded Zoox to $1.3 billion sale to Amazon. Now she's, you know, uh, as of reporting, she's uh, working with Amazon to realize the, 
the vision of an autonomous ride hailing service with its own fleet of fully self-driving electric cars. Next on the list, Jason Wright, first black president of a National Football League team. Uh, in August of 2020, Jason Wright became president of the Washington football team, now known as the Washington Commanders, making him the National Football League's first ever black president. Uh, he is currently the youngest president of an NFL team. Dana Kennedy, uh, the first black person to head a major publishing imprint. And she's quoted in, as saying in her own words, uh, that her career path represents the inclusive progress that many people think is now in peril in America. She became the first woman and the first person of color, not to mention the youngest administrator of the Pulitzer Prizes when she took the helm of the century-old institution in 2017. And last year, I'm sorry, in 2019, she became the first black publisher of a major imprint when she was named senior vice president and publisher of the Simon & Schuster trade imprint. So uh, next on the list is Bozoma St. John, uh, who uh, in 2019, 2020 was Netflix chief marketing officer and first black C-suite executive at the company. Uh, longtime marketing executive St. John made history uh, in June 2020 when she was hired as Netflix chief marketing officer, making her the first black C-suite executive at the company. Uh, Chelk Camera and Ermias Tadassi, uh, and apologies if I totally mangled your names, co-founders of Black Gen Capital, Cornell University's first black investment funds. Uh, like, you know, many successful college students, uh, Cheek, Cheek, uh, and Ermias, and, and again, apologies, have taken full advantage of participating in many of the elite financial clubs and organizations at Cornell University. But when they looked around, according to what they have, they've told the article, they noticed they were the only black and brown members in the ranks of those clubs, which led the two then juniors to launch the school's first minority-owned investment fund, Black Gen Capital, in 2019. So kudos to them. So those are, you know, a few of the... Uh, leaders of uh, today and, and, and recent uh, years, you know, in the last uh, four or five years or so, that uh, are shaping uh, black history uh, at present and for the future. As I said, there are, you know, additions to that name, to that list of names. Uh, for example, I could cite uh, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson. Uh, two black uh, state uh, congresspeople who were very visibly uh, e ejected from the Tennessee uh, legislature for joining in a protest uh, back in uh, 2023 uh, and famously were restored to their positions by their districts uh, later that year 
and both uh, won re-election outright in the upcoming uh, or, or the the uh, midterm election that came up shortly after that. Uh, so the the point being is that uh, African American history in this country is not just a, a thing we look at in the past. Uh, it is a dynamic, uh, ever-changing, ever-expanding uh, uh, component of American history. However, that's not the only component. Um, when we talk about African American history, we have to include us as individuals, uh, us as you know, uh, African Americans in this country, the descendants of uh, enslaved people brought here from Africa. And now, you know, for the, the younger generations out there, I strongly encourage you, reach out to your, your parents, your aunts, your uncles, uh, your grandparents. And, you know, if you still have them living uh, among you, your great-grandparents. Sit down with them. Get their stories. Have them tell you about you know what it was like when they grew up. Uh, and you know it, it. I would advise that not only you know should you try and write it down, but record it. Make a video, and you know make that the the start if you don't have one already of your family's African American history, uh, so that you can pass that along to your children. Uh, one of the things, you know, that I recognize and, you know, in, in my personal uh, journey is, you know, I'm of a generation where uh, my parents, uh, particularly my mother, uh, was the, the grandchild of slaves. Uh, she was born, you know, in 1918, uh, a little more than 50 years after the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, and her parents were the children of slaves. Uh, unfortunately, I did not have an opportunity to gather that family history, uh, something that uh, I have a lot of regret about now in, in you know where I am in life. So you know the the moral of that story is get together with your family, reach out, uh, ask them the stories, you know, ask them about what it was like when they were growing up. Uh, what did they experience? Uh, you know, what, uh, what were the things that inspired them to, you know, to move forward, to go up, to, you know, achieve, to go above and beyond, uh, and, and document that. Uh, that is as vital a part of American history as anything that I've spoken to over the last uh, two episodes and that we will cover here in the Balance of Black History Month um, but I think, in, and again, I speak from personal uh, experience, that it is critically important that we uh, gather our own family history, that we weave that, that tapestry that says who we are as Americans uh, and, you know, where we came from. Uh, you know, I also recommend as, as uh, again, simply through the the fate of you know the 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 years uh, I, I grew up in and you know my parents grew up in and their parents grew up in um, I have only you know resources that I can uh, can uh, glimmer pieces of my family's history 
uh, from sources such as Ancestry.com or you know Black Ancestry, uh, and definitely make use of those tools. Uh, but nothing is uh, more beautiful than hearing the stories uh, first person. And that's why I also, you know, if you get the chance to sit down with your, you know, elders, uh, record it, you know, put it, put it on video, put it on, you know, record it on your phone, get a, get a video camera and set it up and just have them talk and record that history. Uh, I, I cannot stress to you how uh, valuable that will become as you know, time moves on when you have children or your children have children to be able to have access to you know, that rich family history. And you know, just to be fair, uh, it's not just you know, African-Americans that, that should take advantage of that. Any of us, no matter where your roots are, uh, if you haven't you know, taken the time to gather family history, there's no time like the present. Uh, get, in, get in touch with your elder uh, relatives. Uh, tell them you want to find out what it was like when they were growing up. What, uh, what was going on in the world? What have they seen? You know, when, I, when I think of you know, my father, uh, who in another six weeks or so, uh, God willing, will celebrate his 101st birthday. And I think about the history that he has lived through. Same thing with my mother, who, who passed away in 2016 uh, at the age of 97, uh, especially growing up in uh, you know, the rural South uh, in, in Virginia. Uh, what, what did she see? What were her experiences? Which, you know, unfortunately, I didn't have the opportunity to gather, uh, you know, again, being too young or, you know, by the time I was uh, into the historical thing, she had her issues in terms of memory and so forth. Say that to say, don't let the opportunity pass you by. If you have a chance or make a chance to sit down with your, you know, with your elder relatives, please do so. I guarantee that you will find the experience uh, uplifting inspiring and you know very moving uh, particularly as you know time goes on and as you get older uh, you will come to realize the value of knowing you know your story your family's story as part of the American story so you know sort of a, a personal homework request from me to you out there is take the time find out about your history ask the questions um, you know, have the conversations and let them tell you uh, what their story is so that you can weave that into the tapestry of your story and pass that along to your kids so that they can add to that tapestry as well. Uh, I guarantee that you will find it uh, a most valuable exercise. All right, that's going to do it for this week. Uh, next week, we will continue our look at Black History Month 2024 here in the U.S., uh, as I said, I will bring you some more recent additions to the uh, history makers, uh, you know, following up on the CNBC list uh, and, and get you some more names from, you know, the last five or six years uh, and, you know, and so forth. So everybody, please stay safe. Uh, reminder, 
that uh, COVID is rearing its ugly head in our country again. So if you if your vaccines are not up to date or if you haven't gotten the boosters, uh, please uh, do so. Uh, there's also you know flu and RSV going around. So reach out to your medical uh, professionals, reach out to your doctors and arrange to get vaccinated against all of those. So everybody stay safe. Thank you for listening as always. If you have comments or questions about the show, as always, our email address is firedupradio at yahoo.com. Please send me your thoughts. I'd love to hear them. If you have thoughts about you know, your family's history, uh, please, uh, if you're willing to share them, please share them with me. I'd love to hear your stories. So with that being said, thank you all for listening each week. As always, this is Steve. You're listening to Fired Up right here on WJMS Media. And I look forward to doing it all again in seven days. Take care, everybody.